Well, if you've got Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 5 and 10, would you go ahead, do me a favor and shout, I got it. All right, would you do me another favor? Would you rest to your feet out of reverence for the reading of the word of God? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 reads this way. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of God, on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The very words of Scripture. Amen. You may be seated. In the second book of the Bible, it's a book called Exodus, we're introduced to a man by the name of Moses. And God uh, meets Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in a burning bush. He speaks to this guy, Moses, in a burning bush. And he tells Moses to tell the Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the entire world at the time, in the most powerful nation in the entire world, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And so in essence, after a while, Moses obeys God. He goes to Pharaoh, and after 450 years of bondage and slavery for the people of Israel, they are then set free. And so here they are making their way back to the same mountain that God had spoken to Moses to tell him to go to Pharaoh. And they have gathered around this mountain and Moses has gone up into the mountain to speak to God. And this is what God says to Moses. Exodus 19 verses 4 and 5. The words will come up on the screen. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So, in essence, what happens is God sets the people of Israel free 
after 450 years of slavery, and then he says to Moses to say to the people of Israel, I want a relationship with you. I don't want to just set you free. I want to intimately know you and be known by you. And so Moses goes back down to the people of Israel and explains God's desire, and they say to Moses, tell God, we agree. We want to have a relationship with God. And so Moses goes back up to speak with God and tells, uh, tells God that the people of Israel accept his offer of relationship. Uh, and now God says to Moses, I want you to consecrate the people of Israel. I want you to set them apart as holy. And so they participate in some of these ceremonial washings to set themselves apart in preparation to experience the presence of God. See, on this third day that was ready to take place, God wasn't just going to speak to Moses. He was going to speak directly to the people of Israel. And so what happens is on that third day, the mountain where they're at begins to shake and uh, smoke and lightning and thunder begins to surround the mountain and, uh, and a trumpet sounds and all of a sudden the voice of God speaks from heaven. And what you have to understand is God doesn't show up this way as an intimidation factor. God doesn't show up uh, shaking. Because uh, all of a sudden there's something uh, that he's angry about. He doesn't do any of that. He comes down this way because he's the source of power itself. He comes down this way because he's the one who created thunder. He comes down this way because he's the one who created fire. He, he comes down this way because he is the source of power itself. He comes down this way because he's holy. And you and I are not. And so here, here's the essence. God begins to speak to the people of Israel and explain to them that he wants a relationship with them. And this is how he rolls. And so you guys got to roll like this if we're going to be in relationship. And at the hearing of the voice of God, this is what the people of Israel say. Exodus 20 and 19. The people of Israel say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. The presence of God is so powerful, it's like it's nuclear. The, the presence of God, to stand in the presence of God would be like a piece of tissue paper trying to pass through a bonfire. It would literally be disintegrated. That, that is what it's like to stand in the presence of God. And so the people of Israel say, you know what? You know what? We still want a relationship with God, but, but, but tell him to stop speaking. If, if, if he keeps speaking, we're literally going to disintegrate. Moses, you be the mediator. In other words, Moses, you, you be the priest. You be the go-between between the people and God. And so that's exactly what takes place. 
God institutes the priesthood as a mediation between the presence of God and the people of God, knowing that the presence of God is nuclear because he's holy and we are not, and yet he still pursues relationship. And so there must be a mediator between humanity and a holy and a perfect God. So as we get ready to come to our passage this morning, as the people of Israel institute the priesthood as the go-between between the people of God and God himself, what we're getting ready to see in our particular passage is that the author of the book of Hebrews writing to an audience of people who are going through incredibly difficult times, wondering to themselves, is it better for us to just go back to what we used to practice and back to the sacrificial system and back to the tabernacle and the temple so that we can actually be in relationship with God. And the author of the book of Hebrews is saying to them, you don't even understand. The tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood was all pointing to a truer and a greater high priest. Don't go back to that old stuff. Keep going because Jesus is greater. If there is a big idea or a, sort of a title that this text was tailored to teach us, it would be this. Followers of Jesus should keep an enduring faith because Jesus is our great high priest. Followers of Jesus should keep an enduring faith because Jesus is our great high priest. And I've got just two points to put uh, on your radar this morning. The first is that Jesus is a sympathetic advocate. The second is that Jesus is an ordained and eternally perfect mediator. First, Jesus is a sympathetic advocate. Second, Jesus is an ordained and eternally perfect mediator. I, I want to preach from the subject, our great high priest. Our great high priest. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness towards us this morning, giving us the opportunity to gather together to sing to you even, Father, for the opportunity to give back in response to your generosity towards us. Now, I pray, Father, that in this moment we would hear from heaven. God, would we be changed by what we hear? Would you illuminate your word to our hearts? Father, it's to that end that I'm available to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. So we've been saying that the presence of God is nuclear, but God still desires a relationship. He still pursues a relationship with human beings. And in ancient times, that happened through something called the priesthood. And what then would be initiated is the tabernacle and the temple. Look with me at verse 14. Uh, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So in addition to the priesthood and, uh, and the tabernacle, there was this sacrificial system that the people of God participated in in order to be in relationship with a holy and a perfect God. And everything about the tabernacle was actually a representative of the experience of the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. Let me show you a picture of this tabernacle. 
So here's the tabernacle. If you look at the inside of the tabernacle, there is the holy place, and then there's a curtain or a veil, and then there's the holy of holies, uh, and then out in the middle of this picture, there is the courtyard uh, of the people. And so there's a courtyard, there's a holy place, and then there's a holy of holies. And all of this is representative of exactly what the people of God experienced at Mount Sinai. The people stood on the ground of the earth right in front of the mountain. The priests went up into the middle of the mountain, the holy place. Then Moses went directly to the top of the mountain into the literal presence of God. So, the, so, so this is the way the tabernacle was a reminder of Mount Sinai. And it represented the, the, the holy of holies represented the throne room of heaven. But Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 actually clarifies what all of this meant and what all of this was pointing to. And the words will come up on the screen, Hebrews 9 and verse 11. When Christ came as high priest, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, not a part of this creation. In other words, those things, the tabernacle and the temple, were made by human beings to represent something. Then verse 24 clarifies Hebrews chapter 9. Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. They had to build the tabernacle. They had to build the temple. That was only a copy of the true one, it says. Jesus entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. So here's the picture. The tabernacle, the temple, the priest, the sacrificial system is all an illustration. It's all an imaging of something greater. It is all a picture of what Jesus was coming to do later on in human history. That's why the author says in verse 14 that he's not going through a, a, a place made with human hands, but he literally passes through the heavens into the presence of God as our great high priest. But not only does Jesus go through uh, the the truer and greater tabernacle into the presence of God, like the actual thing, not the thing that it represents, but verse 15 is true. For if we do not, for, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, somebody say every, every, every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So we get verse 14 that Jesus is the son of God and oftentimes we miss the fact that he knows every human experience as a human being. He knows every human experience as a human being. He was, as the scripture says, he was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. Therefore, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Sometimes we get that Jesus is the son of God, but we miss the reality that Jesus is completely human and therefore understands every circumstance and every human feeling, every human emotion that you and I go through in life. In other words, Jesus knows what it's like to not know where his next meal is going to come from. In other words, Jesus knows, he knows what it's like to not know uh, where he's going to sleep at night. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man uh, has no place to lay his head. Jesus, Jesus knows 
he knows what it's like to be in relationship and community uh, with friends and people who are, are close like brothers and then experience on the other side of all of that relational capital built, all of that brotherhood built, all of a sudden realize the experience of being stabbed in the back from somebody close to him. Betrayal. He knows that experience. He knows what it's like to go to the funeral of one of his closest friends. He knows what it's like to walk into the house and see his closest friend's sisters crying, mourning and grieving the loss of their brother. He knows what it's like to be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The shortest verse in the Bible says that Jesus wept. He knows that funeral feeling. Jesus, Jesus knows what it's like to have his prayers not answered. In the garden at Gethsemane, he, he said to his father, he said, Lord, let this cup pass from me. He, he knows what it's like to have an anxiety attack and not know what to do uh, with it, but to cry out to God the Father. He, he knows he sweat drops of blood. He was in such pain and sorrow and suffering and anxiety. He did not know what to do. He said, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Yours be done. That feeling of the very thing that you say to yourself, like if this happen, if this doesn't work, my back is against the wall. And to still hear silence from heaven. He knows that feeling. He knows, he knows what it's like to get ready to go to a cross, having been betrayed by his friends, to be tortured by people who don't understand him. He, he knows what it's like, uh, help me Holy Spirit, he knows what it's like to go to his friend's, friend's weddings, to stand in the wedding, watch his friends get married, go to the baby shower of his friend's baby shower and still find himself having unmet desires out of the things that he wanted out of life, the experience that he wanted out of life. He, he, knows, he knows what that's like. He knows, he knows what it's like to be a grown man with grown man desires and still have those desires unmet. Y'all quiet now.
and he knows what it's like to sit in that place lonely and alone knowing that the thing that he has come to do is obey the will of the father and some of y'all may be saying to yourself but 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 man I but Jesus like he he's Jesus like he 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 didn't he didn't experience that the same way that we experience it And yet the Bible says he sympathizes with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way. He knows that feeling when you sit down at night alone in your room. And the thing called a pity party in your heart. He knows that feeling. He knows that pain. He knows that experience. He knows being attracted and not being able to experience the fulfillment of that attraction through a marriage covenant. He knows that experience. And I'm talking to everybody, wherever you may be in your space of desire, whether you're a same-sex attracted person or whether or not, uh, whether or not you, you just want to be married, all of those different things in between. The root of whatever that is, Jesus knows it. He feels it. He experienced it. My wife is eight months pregnant. We praise the Lord uh, for that. Uh, But before we found out that she was pregnant, she went to... Uh, she went to the doctor, and she needed a primary care physician, and so she goes to the primary care physician. She, uh, she uh, is actually a student at an institution around the corner from here that will remain nameless, uh, and so she goes to this particular school as a nursing student, um, and, uh, and the institution shall remain nameless. And so uh, anyways, she, she sees that there's an office with a primary care physician uh, by our house that's the same institution where she goes to school at. And so she makes an appointment with this primary care physician. She looks online and sees that they take our insurance, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, PPO. She says, that's me. That's what we got. We're going to go to this particular doctor because they take Blue Cross, Blue Shield, PPO. And so she goes to the doctor's office. She shows uh, the doctor and the the HR people there her insurance card, and they take it in and, and scan it and say, you're good to go. Come on in. So she comes through the appointment, and a couple of weeks later, we get, a bill in the mail for a little less uh, than a thousand dollars and so I'm like what like you just went for a regular checkup right this ain't nothing special right and she said I just went for I just went for a regular checkup and so she reads the bill she starts to get angry and mad and frustrated and if you know my wife she's like the nicest human being I've ever met right so if she's mad she's shown enough mad so I get on the phone and I call the billing department uh, of this institution that shall remain nameless. And, uh, and so I get on the phone and I'm speaking to the billing department and the lady says to me, sir, I, I know that, uh, that you have Blue Cross Blue Shield PPO, but what you don't understand is that we don't take Blue Cross Blue Shield PPO marketplace. And I said, what, what's that got to do with me? 
And they said, sir, you have the marketplace version of Blue Cross Blue Shield PPO. And I said, y'all running the game on me, ain't you? And, and so she said, sir, I'm sorry, but the policy states that you, as the holder of the insurance policy, you need to know the details of your insurance policy so well that you can know exactly what doctor you're going to and know that it will be covered. That's not our responsibility, sir. That's on you. And I said, ma'am, you don't understand. Let me, let, me go on, let me go ahead and speak to your supervisor. So she goes and she comes back and they gets the supervisor on. And the super, I tell the supervisor, listen, my wife got on. I give her the same spiel. I'm telling Blue Cross, Blue Shield, PPO, Marketplace, non-PPO. I said, ma'am, I don't understand insurance. You guys understand insurance. Somebody could have at least told her, hey, hon, this insurance ain't covered by us, right? Uh, and, the, and then so she goes through her policy and tells me the details. It's like she's reading a rote thing that she has uh, on, uh, on her script, right, to say to people. And, and, and I keep going back and forth, back and forth, and I'm like, ma'am, please, you have to understand. And then, and then you know, she knows that there's going to be an email sent out to me, like, how was your experience with, uh, with the HR department of the billing department uh, what would you rate your experience? And so she says at the end of our conversation, she says, sir, is there anything else that you would like to express? Is there anything else that you would like to share with me, right? And I said, ma'am, I dealt with this whole insurance thing for a year with my mother while she was sick. Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance, COBRA, we cover this, we don't cover that. Uh, social worker put her in a uh, put her in a uh, a facility don't put her in a facility don't have coverage for the facility and I said I literally lived an entire year in a complete panic just trying to figure out the ins and outs and intricacies of health insurance in this country all the while praying to God that he would give me wisdom for stuff that I didn't know what to do with. And it was as though all of a sudden this woman shifted from giving me her spiel, giving me her, her so, sort of rote, rote memorized like elevator speech to all of a sudden she said, I know that experience. She said, I've been taking care of my, I've been my mother's caretaker for two years now. I, I know what it's like to navigate the details and intricacies of Medicare and Medicaid and all of these different things, sir. I know that experience. I can sympathize with your situation. I understand that. And all of a sudden, she says, right before we get off the phone, I'm going to take your case with my own personal notes to say that I think we should cover this bill. I'm going to take your case and I'm going to present it to, to my supervisor. Now, what happened? What changed? All of a sudden, there was a circumstance that she personally identified with. She stepped away from her spiel in her rote, memorized elevator speech, and now I touched something in her heart. What the author of the book of Hebrews is trying to get to you and me is that he's no great high priest who's mediating, saying, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. 
he's, he's, he's no great high priest who comes uh, and gives his elevator spiel and speech for how you should have gotten it right. You should have checked all the boxes and crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. You should have done your research so that you would have known how this whole thing works. Y'all should have gotten yourselves together. You should have worked that out on your own. You, you should have been the one to figure that out. No, that's not our great high priest. We have a great high priest who says, I experienced that experience. I know what that sure enough is like. I know that feeling. I experienced that very thing myself. And I sympathize with you. I have, I have compassion on that. I understand that. I I know that place. I've been to that place. I don't know who I'm talking to today. But somebody, you need to hear that. Jesus sympathizes with you. He has compassion on you. He's not just a great high priest who goes to make the sacrifice. But he says, I'm in it with you. I'm in it with you. I'm in it with you. Jesus isn't just our great high priest who sympathizes with our experiences, who, who knows and understands uh, our experience. He's, he's not just that great high priest. That would be enough, right? We could end, we could end the message on that and be like, we good. That's, that's enough. And yet the author of the book of Hebrews doesn't stop there. He, he goes on. He's, he says, uh, will you look at it with me in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through three, not, not only is Jesus our high priest who sympathizes with us, or not only is he our sympathetic advocate, but also Jesus is an ordained and eternally perfect mediator. He's an ordained and eternally perfect mediator. Now, what exactly does that mean? Look with me at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Now, this is the regular high priest. This is the, this is the, the priest of, of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament. They had to make sacrifices not just for the people, but they had to make sacrifices for themselves because they were not perfect. Now, just as we've been talking about, these priests make sacrifices for the people of God, uh, and now they have to make sacrifices for themselves before before God. And so in Exodus 28, we're actually introduced to uh, the inauguration of the Hebrew priesthood. Exodus chapter 28 and verse 1, it says this, and the words will come up on the screen. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother. So this is literally the very first priesthood initiation. 
Bring, bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him to serve me as priests, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You, sh- you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill. So what is getting ready to be expressed and articulated is literally the sauciest outfit in all of human history. Uh, He's about to hook these priests up with the finest fabrics from the finest tailors and the finest jewelers that literally money can buy. Like Barney's ain't got nothing on this. Actually, Barney's, Barney's went bankrupt, so they don't even count. Tom Ford ain't got nothing on this. Tiffany's ain't got nothing on this. Gucci and Prada ain't got nothing on what the priests are wearing when they come into the presence of God. And the reason why they would wear such saucy and drippy outfits is because of the person they were coming to meet with. It was representative of the magnitude of coming into the presence of God. Look with me at verse 6, and the words will come up on the screen. Exodus 28, verse 6, the words will come up on the screen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. Y'all can go ahead and throw up the picture of the priest. So this is the outfit. Verse 18 through 14, gold, blue, and purple, scarlet yarns, fine twine linen. You shall uh, take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the, the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. Israel and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make the settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold. Y'all thought two chains was the first one doing two chains, but the priests in the Old Testament were the first ones doing two chains. Twist it like cords and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. Now we could go on, it goes on and on to describe the different intricacies of the uh, attire of the priest, but in essence, what it's articulating is that there's an incredibly ornate detail and specifications to coming into the presence of God. And what you see on the priest's shoulders and around his neck there is representative of the people of God. So literally, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are on the priest's heart and on the priest's shoulders when he comes in to represent the people of God. He's carrying with him the people of God. So in Exodus 29, it then describes how Moses was to consecrate the priest through ceremonial washing and sacrifice. Hang in there with me. I promise I'm coming to your neighborhood. Got to go to the classroom for just a few more moments. In verse 4 of 29, the priests are to be washed, describes the, uh, the, the basin required for this, and the priests are to, uh, to be anointed. Exodus 30, 22 through 25, describes the oil required for this. The priests symbolically transfer their sin onto the animal that dies in their place, and that word consecrate means to, to wholly set apart, and, and they were washed in the act of cleansing uh, from sin, and they were to be dressed in their priestly robes uh, and anointed with oil as a sign uh, that they act in their own right, but they're consecrated as priests. They, they are not acting on their own. They're acting as conduits of God as priests. Now, ordinary people never went into the tabernacle, never went into the tabernacle. 
Only the priests would ever go into the tabernacle to represent the people. And we could spend the entirety of the rest of our days talking about the intricacies and the details of what it meant for these people uh, to wear what they wore and the details of what, what went into the tabernacle and all of those different things. When the priests would come into the tabernacle, they, uh, they would wear on, on, on the, the high priest. On one day, they called it the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. So literally the place that they believed to be the presence of God, like Moses went into the, the top of the mountain, going into the presence of God. One day a year, they would go into the presence of God. They would wrap a rope around the ankle of the high priest, and they would fix bells to this rope. The reason why they wrapped the rope around the priest is so that if he did something wrong while he was in the Holy of Holies and he died, they could pull him out without having to go in themselves. And so the bells would let them know that he was still alive. He was still doing what he was supposed to do. But if they stopped hearing the bells ring, that means something happened. Like he, he came into the nuclear presence of God and he didn't do something right. That's how holy and set apart God is. Uh, and so th that's literally what they would do for, for the priests. So they would come in with this ephod and the breastplate over their shoulders and their heart that represented the people of God and make sacrifice for them to cover their sin, not to do away with their sin, but to cover their sin. But they had the people of God on their heart and on their shoulders. That's what the priests would do. And all of the accoutrements of the priest's attire and the process of consecration and all of, the, all of these details represented the magnitude of what they were doing and who they were encountering. But Jesus is unique as a high priest. Jesus is, is distinct. He's, he's, he's not unique in that uh, he was not appointed by God. He was appointed by God. Verse 5 tells us, uh, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 5, so I also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. No, he, he's not unique in that he wasn't appointed. He was appointed. He's unique in that he's not just a priest, but he's the son of God. Not only is he the son of God and a priest, but his priesthood has no end date. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 6. It says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who in the world is Melchizedek? I'm glad you asked. You asked such good questions. Uh, Melchizedek is uh, a reference, what's happening here in Hebrews 5 is a reference to Psalm 110 and verse 4. And we're introduced to this guy, Melchizedek, later on uh, in chapter 7. But earlier on in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 14, the patriarch of the people of Israel's faith, a man by the name of Abraham, encounters a priest who's also the king of Salem, whose name is Melchizedek. So in essence, what the author of the book of Hebrews is trying to let us know is that Jesus' priesthood predates anything that God ever did with Aaron and the priests. Not only does it predate anything that God did with Aaron and the priests, but it goes on past anything with Aaron and the priests. It is a priesthood that lasts forever. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, in other words, in the days of his incarnation, when he became a human being and lived like us, verse 8, he learned obedience through what he suffered, verse 9, Hebrews 5, 
and being made perfect, not, not that he became perfect, but that he lived his entire life as a human being, tempted in every way, like we've been saying, and yet without sin, unlike any other priest before, latter half of verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So let me see if I can summarize all of what we've been talking about. Jesus is our great high priest who sympathizes with every human experience that we experience, knows it on a deep, intimate level, and can be with us in that experience and have compassion on us when he represents us into the presence of God. But not only that, his priesthood had no beginning and his priesthood has no ending. Therefore, he can always be a mediator before us in front of God. And he lived completely perfectly like no priest who's ever lived in the human history. But not only does he do that, but he becomes the sacrifice himself. So here's the picture. Jesus is our sympathetic high priest, but not only that, he's our perfect high priest who has no end date on his priesthood. And because of his perfect life, this is the picture of what God wants to show you and me. Exodus 19, God makes a covenant with the people of God. He says, if you obey me, then you'll be my treasured possession among all the people in all the earth, for all the earth is mine. Now what happens in response to that is that because the presence of God is nuclear, there needs to be a mediator between God and humanity. And over the course of human history, he institutes the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood. And what he's saying to you and me in Jesus is that through Jesus he is the gift of grace that not only did God make the covenant but he keeps our end of the covenant's promise in other words he makes the covenant and then he keeps his end of the bargain he keeps our end of the bargain in the covenant because Jesus is the gift of grace who is the sacrifice himself you see God not only pursued the people of Israel when the people of Israel couldn't keep their end of the bargain, he provided the prophet to tell them about it. He provided the priest to mediate for him. When they couldn't keep their end of the bargain, he provided the sacrifice for it all in Jesus. He initiated the relationship and then kept our end of the bargain in the relationship. That is scandalous. That is grace. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so is God the God who the people said, Moses, you speak to God or else we're going to die? Yeah, you're right. He is. And yet the beauty of the storyline of what this text is tailored to teach us is that we no longer need a priest with accoutrements and incredible uh, outfits to go into the presence of God. All we got to do is put on Jesus' righteousness. And I can have a word with the master. I, I just got to come clothed in his righteousness by grace through faith in him and his death, burial, and resurrection. And I can do what? I can do verse 16 chapter 4 because of all of what I just described 
we can do verse 16 of chapter 4. Let us then with confidence, with boldness, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus is our great high priest, we don't have to approach God with trepidation. Because Jesus is our great high priest, we can rush into the presence of an almighty God, the source of power itself, as children clothed in righteousness whom he calls beloved. All right, Steve, you spent about 35 minutes talking about priests and tabernacles and Moses and all that stuff. What's that got to do with me uh, Monday morning when I go to work tomorrow? It means that you don't need me, Pastor Derek, any of the elders here, for you to go into the presence of God. I know that some of us may have come from a tradition where we go to a priest and the priest absolves our sins and that's the way we're mediated between, uh, between us and God. And yet the beauty of what this text is tailored to teach us is that you and I, through, by grace through faith, enter into the presence of God with boldness. It means that God hears your prayer. You don't need no special person or somebody you think is farther along in your faith or whatever to pray for you, for God to hear your prayers. He hears your prayers because of the supremacy of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. That's literally why we pray in Jesus' name. Because I ain't coming in my name. If I came in my name, it would be a swift rejection. I'm not coming in my name. I'm coming in the perfect name of my great high priest whose righteousness I am clothed in by grace. Woo! That means tomorrow morning when you wake up, you can say, Lord, I'm here. And the God of the universe hears you. Wow. See, what else does it mean? It, it means, it means that for some of us, man, we, we haven't, we haven't rushed to the throne of grace because we look at ourselves and we say, man, I'm, I'm not living up to the standard that I feel like I ought to be living up to, right? Like I, I just, I had a bad week last week and I'm not sure, I'm not sure if, uh, if God is really going to hear my prayers if, if I come to the throne of grace. And, and it's, it's just because I got to get myself together a little bit in order, uh, in order for me to, uh, to talk to God. I got to get back into God's good graces. I got to do a couple of quiet times and I got to fast at lunchtime. And, and, and then, uh, and then uh, maybe if I share my faith, then all of a sudden now God, God is really going to hear my prayers. Let me bless you with something. This, I'm going to hurt you, but then I'm going to bless you. The very fact that you think that it's your obedience that enables God to hear you is offensive to God. Because something in you is saying Jesus' work is not sufficient. 
I need to have some part of this. Let me help you. You have no part in this. There is no part of what you could do would ever make you acceptable to God to hear your prayers. Instead, the only part you have to do is faith in the grace that's provided for you because of the supreme nature of the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate in the flesh, literally became a human being, experienced all of what you and I experienced, then went to the cross to die in your place and for your sins, took on the entirety of the wrath of God, all of your sin, past, present, and future, and rose in victory over Satan's sin and death. That's the only reason you can come into the presence of God. Ain't nothing else besides that. And so we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. We have a great high priest whose priesthood was ordained by God, had no beginning, had no middle, and will have no end date. So that you and I, by grace through faith, can rush to the throne of grace. To the heavenly father who calls us beloved. Jesus is our great high priest. Let's pray together. God, like saying what I just said out loud sounds scandalous. And yet it wouldn't be the gospel if it wasn't. Sometimes we get so familiar with Jesus that we miss, like, the magnitude. We miss the magnitude and we minimize it through our own efforts. And it should be the magnitude of the work of Jesus Christ that ought to say to us, man, I got to get up and I got to get going, not so that I can get approval from God, but because I got it. And it's crazy. It was grace. And the grace keeps showing up. Mercies are new every morning. I I keep waking up and it's washing over me more and more. I I keep waking up and I find new, uh, new details of it that I didn't understand before. I keep waking up and God illuminates some more portions of his love towards me. I, I keep waking up and I keep hearing the Holy Spirit say I'm the beloved of God, not on the basis of what I accomplished but on the basis of grace Woo! and so father we come into your presence we rush into your presence not with trepidation we still know you're holy We still know you're all powerful, but we come in Jesus' name. It's in his name that I pray.